0: Clinic presents
1: Emergency Medicine Grand Rounds.
0: Hello everyone and welcome back to the Always On EM podcast. If you're a regular follower of our show, you know it's mid-June and that means you're expecting a Grand Rounds talk. Two years ago, Dr. Laura Walker gave a talk at Mayo Clinic EM Grand Rounds on the application of networking science to healthcare. It's no surprise that she has since gone on to become the director or chairperson of our digital emergency medicine innovation practice. But at the time, she was leading a regional EM practice in Minnesota. Her talk was really thought provoking, though quite visual and somewhat difficult to directly translate to an entirely audio platform. For this reason, Alex and I sat down virtually with her and another special guest. So this month, we present our discussion in the first part. And then, for those who wish to continue on, the Grand Rounds recording is attached afterwards. As always, don't forget to like, follow, comment about our show on whatever platform you are using. Now let's jump into it, but to set the stage, we are all talking in 2019 during the pandemic and her grand rounds is delivered during that part of the pandemic as well when we had really very aggressive precautions. Okay, before we get too far, Laura, isn't there a really interesting connection to Facebook or Meta?
2: In this case, it did happen to be a connection through Facebook that brought this collaboration together, but I was scrolling on my phone as one does and catching up on all of my contacts happenings and found that one of my friends had posted a link to a paper that she had just written and it sounded interesting about emergency surgeries and patient movement and I opened it up and I'll be the first to say I'm not always the most devout reader of the latest medical literature but I was excited to read this because it sounded good and open it up, started reading. It was very, very complicated and difficult to understand. But then I came to this picture that really explained what was going on and showed how all of the patients were moving through the system from their presentation in A&E or the ED through their hospital course, including their landing in the surgical suite and various radiology studies and other places in the hospital. And when I looked at that, picture and kind of read through the concepts behind it, it absolutely resonated to me with the way that I think of our healthcare system. And, you know, in my role in the region in Southeast Minnesota, it's patients from anywhere and everywhere who travels through the hospital is what I do. And so having this framework to better understand and describe it was eye-opening for me. And so I immediately contacted Dr. Kohler And told her I was very excited about her paper and then conveniently within the next couple of months she arrived in the United States at our family reunion and we were able to connect in person and have a really great discussion and lay the groundwork for the collaboration, because she is married to my cousin and so I have all kinds of reasons to run into her out
3: in the world. (laughs) That's wonderful, the family connection. And mm-hmm. Dr. Kohler, you're joining us uh, from Cambridge, where you're an anesthetist. Is that correct?
4: Yeah, we we call um, call ourselves anesthetists, which is um, anesthesiologists, as it as it turns out. Um, but yes, I'm an um, anesthetic registrar, and um, in Cambridge, in the UK. Um, and yes, what Laura said was was correct. We are connected through that and, and on a porch. Um, in Minnesota, we discussed networks, so that was cool.
3: And that's a perfect segue to the topic of the podcast today. If for our listeners, you had to break down what exactly a network is, what is it?
4: Um, <laughs> a network is 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 a way to to show a system. Um, it shows um, different pieces of a system as nodes and edges, the connections between different components in a, in a system. So it's um, a way to visualize and understand and explain complicated systems or simple systems with math, basically. You can look at anything, really, that people use it from, from social science to engineering to infrastructure to proteins to brain analysis. They use these kind of methods to understand how different parts in something are connected or interact or yeah, know each other. It, it's, it's a long sort of longstanding field, but it hasn't really been used in healthcare very much in, at least in healthcare services in health services research. It has been used in, in brain research and proteins and cancer biology and those things, but not in this kind of thing that, that Lauren and I do.
0: We heard a little bit about how uh, Dr. Walker got interested through your work. How did you come to find out about networks and get passionate about this?
4: As, as an anaesthetist here, at least, you see patients sort of in one spot in a hospital. You see them when they come to theatres, sort the of operating room, but they've been other kind of places. And we get so frustrated when things are not working, when either the patient's late or nothing's happening or there's no bed for them to go to or whatever, whatever problem there may be. Um, our hospital has a lot of different services, but it, it's both an elective and an emergency centre. Um, for a range of specialties and so I think the frustration came from sitting somewhere and being like why is this not working Um, and I, I felt like different areas of the hospitals were all connected and the patients were connected to all these different places but I didn't feel like I understood exactly what was happening
2: for us on the emergency medicine side we see it from the other end we want to be pushing our patients forward through the system meanwhile Dr. Kohler's on the other end waiting for them to be pulled through and they've got all of these little spots in between to go.
0: And quite a corollary to Dr. Walker your your QI work really assesses systems as well. It must just be in the family blood. Well,
2: I mean, we're not really related. <laughs> just <laughs> It's we're befriended rather than there, we're befriended. There you go. Yes. We're chosen. <laughs> we're
4: chosen. Um yeah, and also I I always wanted to to understand what was going on with with from a data point of view. People talk about it anecdotally, but they don't necessarily have looked at have looked at it from a whole system point of view or from a longitudinal point of view. It's often I encountered this one patient and this happened, but is that actually true? Is that actually what's really happening, or is it just that one time that you remember. That was interesting to me.
3: And I think you're getting very much to the underlying research question. If if you said there was a goal, a direction for your project as a whole, what question are you trying to answer?
2: So I think if you take my standpoint on it, um, as Vink said, I'm a very practice and systems oriented person. And so the way that I have envisioned moving forward in using this is first to understand what we have and to show that network modeling does in fact represent reality. And I think we're pretty, I think we're pretty good. I think we're there with what we have so far. And then for me, some of the next steps are what happens if you change a variable in the system, right? So if right now I am getting patients who are transferring from one site to another specifically to see a cardiologist and there's value added to switch where we access that cardiologist so is that you know telehealth or some other mechanism can we make the system work better in that case and obviously there's a lot of different forces that come into play when you're dealing with a whole system of hospitals and different services and there's business issues there's social issues there's you know patient preference there's provider availability all kinds of pieces that come together but this gives us I think a really intuitive way to show what we're doing and what we're thinking about and what those effects will be in addition to a way to quantify it with the math
0: part.
3: And I think uh, for our listeners out there, you have to take a look at these publications and, and look at these incredible graphs because it, it really speaks a thousand words. Um, but there, there's a lot of math and science here and Dr. Kohler, how did you first get interested in programming and that mathematical relationship? I think uh, I read that you first became interested in Python. Is that correct?
4: Yeah, so uh, it's a bit of a, a longer, yeah, a longer, longer story. than that, I used to be a physicist, so my first career was in astrophysics. I did my PhD in cosmology and um, simulated galaxies as as my thesis, um, and so. You, Coding, while not I'm not a natural programmer, was the necessity to do that. Um, then when I came back to, to research, because I missed it, after my medical degree, then I learned Python, because that was the new programming language, originally having done Fortran, for anybody who knows how old that is. Um, <laughs> so, um, yes, I used Python for this kind of programming, which has a... Um, a package or something in it that's called networks, which helps you do all those things without having to code every little bit of it. Um, and it's very help, well documented and, and, and useful to use in these kind of circumstances when you don't really know what you're doing.
0: I think that's amazing so, that, that your past life is an astrophysicist. When I tell people my past life was a semi-professional video game player, it's nowhere near as cool. <laughs>
3: oh my gosh. When Another. I say that's my cool past too, life, there's a
4: lot of people who find that really cool.
3: My past life as a Best Buy camera salesman uh, pales in comparison, uh, and I don't think we can move on without briefly digging a little bit deeper. So, simulated universes—is that how you described it? Uh, you have to tell us a little bit more about that.
4: Um, it's been a long time. Um, yes, my, my my thesis was on the first stars and trying to find out what happens with the gas around the first stars in the universe and um, how they send out their light and ionize the gas around them. So it was, yeah, it was big, big cosmology simulations, which ran for about a month on a computer, which was exciting.
0: Looking at those diagrams, there, there, there's so many layers to them. But for those who can't see them, when you just look at them, you can tell a system that is redundant and complicated versus very simple. And, Um, Dr. Walker, if you, if you could try and paint that visual, you put it up in grand rounds, you know, how these systems look. Can you paint that for our audience at all?
2: I guess, which one would you like me to try to paint?
0: Both. like what does a complicated redundant system look like? And what does a simple system look like in contrast?
2: Okay. So I think, you know, I, I mostly reflect honestly back on Katarina's graph of emergency surgeries and so you have the starting point of A&E, the emergency department, and then from there you have patients that go to other nodes, and there are a lot of different nodes, and there's a lot of back and forth, and the overall patient paths sometimes seem to go in different directions, which is a variable you either can include or not include In the graph but you know they'll go to radiology for one study they'll come back they go to radiology for another study which i think again as emergency physicians we know that this happens happens. and there's a lot of transport time involved in that and you know they're going to the icu or they're going to the or first and they'll go you know icu then or or then icu and there's just kind of a lot of different pieces that can go different ways and you know, I can't I can't speak to the efficiency of ORs or the expected arrival times of patients, but I imagine that when the trajectory is unknown where they're coming from and the busyness of the OR is a variable there also to determine can the patient go to the OR? Can, does the patient need to be stabilized somewhere else first or all of these things? So you can see how patients move in different ways and it is very redundant. Um, but in a lot of ways that can help um, the system have a little bit more ability to accommodate stress. I would say, right? Katarina can disagree with me if I'm wrong on this, but you know, if we could only go from the ED to the OR, then any patient that needed to go to the OR would have to stay in the ED until they could get there. Whereas if they can go to the ICU first, that opens up the space in the ED, and ultimately they'll go to the ICU anyway. And so that gives you a little bit more room to work with until the OR is open. Does that make sense?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Oh,
4: so I, I was, yeah, that, that makes sense. I was just going to say, so if you can imagine a simple system like an elective pathway. So you come in, you go to a ward or wherever you, you call it, to a clinic and then to an intervention and then back to the ward and then back home. So it's like a straight path. You have a little node, a little connection, a little node here and straight through through your picture from left to right, you go back home. If you think about a complex system, it has many more options, like Laura said, you may go from one place to another place and to the, so let's go from one ward to another ward, to the intervention, to a different ward, back to the intervention, back home. And so then what the picture you end up with is that there's a lot of nodes or dots connected in various ways with this sort of net of, or network, um, of connections between the nodes. Um, And that gives you both... Some inefficiencies and some problems because you suddenly have patients in different areas that may be treated differently, that may get different attention, spreads the attention from from physicians over more areas um, and can cause delays, but it gives you flexibility because if one's full, then you can go somewhere else. Or um, if one's full of infectious diseases or something, you might not be able to go there or whatever. So There's pros and cons to both, but... Um, what we found, for example, in our complex system, is that um, patients going to much more to the medical wards, which shouldn't they shouldn't be going to, because they were surgical patients, had much more delays. And we were not aware that so many of our patients had gone to medical wards before we did this, for example. Um, so that's that's an example of a so, sort of complicated net versus a straight
2: line through. It's a much cleaner explanation.
3: I can definitely see this in a single hospital. Where are my patients going? But I think there's an even deeper question here, uh, which is partially what both of you are trying to address with your health system evaluation. Uh, Probably one of the biggest challenges of our time is how to provide complex care in rural areas. And, uh, And Dr. Walker, I know we both practice in the community and you're one of the leaders of our community practice. How are you trying to utilize this tool to continue to facilitate great care uh, in the community?
2: Yes, so the what we've been able to do so far, and I was astounded at the number of visits that we analyzed, but it's over a million visits that we have in our data set. And taking that have been able to look at what level of care patients have needed in our community. So do they need just floor level or ward level care? Do they need ICU care? Do they need something in between? And beyond that, we're aiming to get to what specialty services patients have needed. And so do you need a nephrologist for a ward patient, or do you need a nephrologist for an ICU patient? Because all of those resources play out a little bit differently. And with the information that we have so far, looking at our entire health system, so our you know 20-plus hospitals in Mayo Clinic Midwest um, just looking at the pathways for level of care, we see a lot of different patterns. And the hope is once we extrapolate that out and kind of get a little bit more granular, we'll be able to understand, you know, does every patient that is, you know, theoretically transferred for cardiology, do they truly need to come to a tertiary care center? Or can we find a way to provide that care locally in the rural setting and still really meet you know our category of one best level of care for Mayo Clinic. And I think that is something that we aspire to be able to do and hopefully this work will help get a grasp for what that would take and what that would look like.
0: I remember during the talk you also showed um, a map that our network map where you were able to highlight some people in a community were bypassing their their local ED or hospital to come to Rochester and You ask such an intriguing question, why would they do that? And without that map, it'd be sometimes hard to really understand how many people in relation to the people who are going to the local site are are bypassing and why. And um, it got me thinking from my interest in health QI and accessibility, um, how much more tangible and um, manageable that information was presented through a network map than if I just say 5% or 10% of people are skipping the local hub hospital uh, or the local hospital in favor of the hub. And so I thought it was brilliant.
2: Yeah. I think the visualization really adds a lot to it. I think it does. It does help. It doesn't, none of this math gives us the why behind it necessarily when we're coming to, you know, personal decisions to not go to a small critical access hospital, but to drive 30 more minutes to come to a large center, that's going to be another layer of investigation too, because if we want to be delivering the best care possible as close to home as possible, we need to understand why people are opting to make a different choice.
0: To that end, Dr. Kohler, I hear you have expertise in making these maps. How do you do that?
2: Uh, Well,
4: um, I spent a long time trying to find a free software that would um, allow me to make maps for a lack of funding. Um, there is a, a software called Cytoscape, which is free to download. Um, it's definitely not the most easy to use and definitely not the most beautiful to use, but it's it's possible to make pictures with it that look reasonable. Um, and you can pull these kind of networks once you have aggregated them in and then um, make sort of reasonable graphs with them that sh- allow you to look at the nodes and color them by whatever variable you want and make the the connections between visible. And um, I think Laura and I have spent a long time trying to make reasonable graphs from our data, Um, especially for the the system that we're looking at with Mayo. It's quite tricky to figure out how to arrange the nodes in a reasonable way to make the best picture, both for the math and analyzing, but mainly for understanding and finding out the answers to our questions. You can you can arrange them so that um, you can find the, the answers you're looking for. You can see, for example, as you were mentioning, if people decide to go two two different ways from a from a home node or from an area that they're they're originating from, you can see the arrows splitting off their node, um, and you can color it. And um, we currently have colored some of the things so you can see locally grouped areas better, um, and that helps visualization
3: something that really impressed me in looking and through the through the work and listening to both of you is that the network science that you're both applying comes from an area of passion to make things better Dr. Kohler you said there was an inefficiency that i observed with my patients and and Dr. Walker similar you said i was trying to consider the inefficiencies i was seeing in my patient flow going through an entire system and you are applying this new tool to this complex issue. When you've considered quality work as a whole, Dr. Walker, you have a a big background in that, but Dr. Kohler, have you, have you pursued other quality interests or is this a a new thing for you?
4: I have, I'm, I'm interested in, in, yeah, in health services generally and how to make them work more efficiently, but also in our, in our case, we have relatively resource restricted in the NHS where I work. Um, but, um, trying to make it more efficient can, can be helpful. So for example, we're currently working on our emergency theaters, which are um, always running and always over full, and how to um, make this, the service more efficient, faster turnaround time, which in emergency theaters with many different specialties is quite tricky. So we've come up with some, some thoughts and some ideas that sometimes work and sometimes don't, but um, sort of more of a holistic way of looking at it from all the different teams that come together. Um, so those kind of things. Yeah.
3: And, uh, Dr. Walker, in terms of your history of quality work, is there anything else you would apply this to?
2: So many things. Um, like I said, when I, when I first read this article and saw the first graph, it like, it's the way my brain works when I think about systems. And so, um, you know, knowing that it's on the priority list for this year for the EDs to tighten up their length of stay. Right. I think, Wow. You know, we could map this out. We could get a good understanding that's very communicatable to do that. Um, and, you know, certainly I have a lot of, I have a lot of projects in the queue, so to speak, on, you know, what, what to do with all of this. And we've spent a lot of time building our first main database, which is able to kind of turn out some of this information, but we need more databases. We need more data to plug into our networks and so we have an excellent programmer that we've been working with for the last gosh year and a half um, and are very fortunate to be able to have him working on the next phases so we can ask more questions of the data and um, you know hope to interface more with ed practice and get into the department itself rather than looking at this higher level question all the time um, since that's where i I live and work and I do want to make things better all the time.
4: So we've also gone to, to Myanmar, to, to Yangon there and um, have got some data from their neurosurgical center, um, looking at where patients go in their neurosurgical center. It's very minimal data because it's very hard to collect data in that setting, but um, we've used that, made a little network graph, which wasn't terribly informative, but are now making it using that. Making a simulation to try and find out where we could put very limited additional resources to improve their care, which is currently tricky because of the political situation.
3: I didn't know we had that network connection between us, Dr. Kohler. Actually, uh, I grew up in Myanmar. That I spent eleven years there, and uh, and so I thank you for all of your your work in the country, making healthcare better. I definitely agree. It's a, a, a tough political climate right now, but thank you for applying this incredible technology there. It's
4: really interesting. Sorry.
3: <laughs> what are the chances of that?
4: Where did you live?
3: Um, I lived in Yangon. You, if I was if I was still there, I'd be benefiting from your network science, no doubt.
2: I can't believe I knew both of those things, that Katarina had done work there and that you grew up there, and I didn't put the pieces together until she said me and just now
3: Dr. Kohler, oh, how again. did you get interested in Myanmar and how, how did you find that connection?
4: So, the hospital I work in in Cambridge, they have a connection to um, Yangon General Hospital, which um, they have a partnership with them for a long time about trauma care, intensive care, neurotrauma care, um, through one of my consultants um, who was friends with their um, pathologist. And she moved back to Myanmar. And so, they set up this, this partnership. Um, I got significant amount of funding teaching trauma systems, trauma system care to both doctors and nurses and trying to improve care there. And then a colleague of mine is, is a systems researcher and he is a global health um, anesthetist. And he has been doing his PhD on trauma qualitative analysis of trauma systems in Myanmar and I joined him to be his quantitative buddy. Um, so <laughs> that's how that came about.
3: That's just incredible.
0: Alex, did you ever access the healthcare system in uh, Myanmar and Yangon?
3: You know, um, I I did have, uh, fortunately I didn't have too many interactions uh, in that uh, I didn't have to go to the hospital too many times when, when I was a child, thankfully, but um, there were huge disparities, to be honest. And uh, as uh, a foreign person living in Myanmar, I had access to uh, going to nearby hubs of care. For exa- example, Bangkok and uh, Singapore, and uh, and that that was you know a luxury that uh, my family took advantage of. And so the the kinds of things that Dr. Kohler is doing to make care better for everyone is really essential. Um, uh, to make to make care better for the average Burmese citizen. So thank you so much for doing that.
4: We haven't achieved very much yet, but we're hoping to eventually.
0: Well, certainly not as cool of a spontaneous connection. But I was trying to think where to place network maps in the QI process. Um, and it, Dr. Walker and Dr. Kohler, are you and we might speak QI methodology in a different language, but I'm thinking in the define and and analysis stages, mm-hmm. network maps seem to fit pretty easily, but. What do you both think?
2: I would absolutely agree with that, but also um, throughout like the measure, um, because you can you can illustrate the changes that you've made, and we've kind of shown in some of our work that there's a you can use the temporal identifiers and compare a before and after um, fairly easily, which Kenarina did a fun way for our upcoming absolutely. manuscript which I'm sure will be published by the time this podcast is out.
4: Um, I think it, it can be really helpful as an in, in the initial phase to find out what your system looks like and where you wanna focus your, your improvement targets, for example, but also as, as Laura said, to, to check before and after, and then to help people during the process to visualize where you're, what you're talking about. I mean, if you look at process improvement or something, you could, you could use it to, to make a process map You could use it to run a simulation or um, to just generally explain what what you're aiming to to do.
0: Yeah, and um, you did that a little bit, Dr. Walker, showing our research system and tangibly how if people didn't know a certain researcher, they were kind of excluded from being part of a publication team, right? Or or at least not included.
2: Not quite that dramatic. Oh, so I sorry. only I only took the 2020 publications from only our department and um, did make more of a social network map on that to kind of get, get an idea and make it real for us during Grand Rounds on how these connections went. But you definitely did see kind of these little neighborhood clusters of people who frequently worked together. Um, you would have a couple of people who worked with a wide variety of people. And then, you know, you kind of had these two Two small groups off on the side that weren't connected to anything else, um, you know, because it was a small group that had published one paper together, and nobody else had published with anyone else associated with our department. Um, I'm still working on fleshing that one out a little bit to figure out what story that really tells, um, but it definitely um, is an interesting thing and could be looked at also over time to say, you know, here's 2020, here's 2019, and kind of how did those relationships change over time? You know, Are we collaborating with more people early in our career or more people later in our career is kind of one of the things that's on my mind. And is there an association with academic rank on how many connections you have at any given point during your career? I have so many questions for all of those things that it's, it's in the background of my life right now trying to figure out what those relationships might look like and actually be.
0: If you could redesign it, in what you consider the optimal network for research in a large academic center, what would it look, how would it look differently?
2: Oh, I don't know. So one of the things that Kateri and I have talked about, because um, one of the findings with all the math on our healthcare system work here at Mayo was that it, it wasn't a small world network and it wasn't a scale free network, which are, you know, terms related to the particular kind of thing. And so I was wondering, you know, does that mean, our network is not optimal. You know, how does that assessment relate to the reality of the system? And one of the specific things that we had um, is a beautiful plot that Katarina did that kind of showed um, the, bet- I think it was the betweenness versus, what was the other axis? degree. Degree. So degree is how many connections a given node has. And betweenness is a calculated number. And so we had a couple of hospitals that didn't follow the expected curve for the network. And when we looked at kind of the time slices for that, one of them moved onto the curve, um, kind of in the post-COVID era. And so wearing my clinical practice hat, my question was, why did it do that? And the reason that it did that was because we had made more connections between that site and other sites. So instead of just you know, it's a smaller hospital and it would usually transfer to its regional hub and that was it. But during the year of COVID, we expanded our ability to transfer patients to other sites. And so they started transferring not just to the regional hub, but also to another mid-sized hospital with similar capabilities. And so once they started doing that, they lined up on the curve just right. And, you know, so to me, I wonder, did we make the system better or did we hurt the system by doing that? And in this case, we happened to make the system better. So when it fit that curve and kind of behaved as expected with that type of graph, we had a stronger network and those patients had more options to where they could go. Um, but so we take this back to a social network and, academic rank and all of that. And first of all, I don't have enough information to answer the question, like what would optimal look like? Um, Because again, there are so many interpersonal values that come into play, right? Like, do I want to be someone who collaborates with a lot of people or do I, am I just going to be a person who churns on my own topic all the time and have a core, you know, lab or a research team. So I think it could look a lot of different ways um, that there's, there's room for variation to still um, have a high functioning system.
4: It depends on, on what kind of who you are, what an art yeah. like if you're a junior or if you're a senior, you're you know the lab leader, or if yeah. you're the one who, who's trying to get in. It's probably quite different types of networks that would benefit you.
3: Yeah. For our listeners that are brand new to this topic and uh, like myself, I, I find the language can be a little bit of a barrier to understanding exactly what's going on. And so Thinking back to something we've all been through, thinking about something like a high school class, and we're all in the same class, and, and in some ways, maybe that's our network. Trying to apply some of these terms, maybe you can help define them a little bit. When we're saying something like betweenness, how how would betweenness occur between friend groups or something like that? What does that describe?
4: If you think about your friends in, in, a, in a class, if you're in high school or whatever, um, you're If you say that a connection happens if you're friends with them, let's say if you talk to them most days or something, you could define it at different levels, but let's say they're friends. So then all your friends you'd have a connection to, so that would be your degree. So let's say you have 10 friends, so your degree is 10. And then each of your friends has friends also, and all those things are connected. And let's say nobody is on their own. Everybody has at least one friend. So then you have a connected network. You don't have any components that are left over. Between this is a measure of how important a node, or in this case, a person, is to the network. So, if you try and go from each person, so from each person to all the other people, the shortest way to go is called the shortest path. So, if you're friends with, let's say, someone called Peter and Peter is friends with James, then the shortest way to go from you to James is through Peter. So, just two steps. And the betweenness measures how many of these shortest paths pass through a node. So if you're really important to the network, a lot of these paths pass through you. So you'll have a high betweenness centrality. If, you have, if nobody, nobody's shortest path go through you, then you have a low betweenness centrality. So if you're a bit of an outsider who has one or two friends, but you know nothing else, then no path goes through you basically. Um, but if you're the social hub and everybody is friends with you, but and you're connecting different groups, then lots of paths will go through you.
0: That was such a beautiful explanation.
4: I was going to say in a hospital, if you have a location that everybody passes through. So for us, obviously, theatres for my network was high because everybody had to come through the operating room. Now was the definition. And in, in the Mayo Center, we had high between the centrality for um, the, the academic center. So, so Rochester Emergency Department, because Again, a lot of patients that come from other places pass through there. Um, so that, that's what was saying.
0: That's really interesting. I'd heard the term closeness centrality, which I read is a score for each node based on its closeness to the other nodes in the network. Is that something you use as well?
4: We don't tend to use it as much because it's more of a clustering thing. So people are close to each other. There's so many different ways of saying that. It's very tricky. These centralities are all very dependent on what you're looking for, basically.
0: So as I was thinking about networks and how to apply them, I started to imagine if you had a network map that had how a thousand consultants working in A&E or emergency medicine connected clinical data points. So it's not movement of patients or anything, but how we, our brains would connect the data we're getting to make the diagnosis of meningitis. It would, I think it would be really neat to see what, the, what those markers of closeness and, and things are that get us the fastest heuristic uh, to making those decisions. Am I thinking about this right? If we could take the way we'd connect data points, could you see that being used that way?
4: So you could, um, a friend of mine is trying to do that for um, elderly patients in delirium. Um, so what they sometimes do is to ask a group of, of um, physicians or group of professions of any kind, um, what their thoughts are when they think about, let's say, meningitis, um, and you, you, you can do it like a card sorting game, or a, um, a Delphi study, which is like asking people, you know, to come up with ideas. Um, and then you could turn those answers into nodes. Um, and the more people mention those cards or nodes or whatever, the the heavier the weight to that goes connected to meningitis, for example, or delirium or whatever you mean. And then you could you could make a network out of that and find groups within it or communities and links.
0: Can you think of any other uh, ways that if we were to fast forward a few years, that these networks might apply to education or administration of healthcare or optimization? We've touched on many of them already, but
2: Yeah. I think one of the, one of the great things about it is that as Katerina said earlier, those nodes can be anything. Those edges can be anything, you know? Um, so if someone, if someone has a topic that they think that a network might be useful, you know, theoretically, we could come up with what the nodes would be, what the characteristics would be that we would be looking at, um, how to represent that, you know, either as part of the node or part of the edge. And, figure that out. Um, So I think, you know, it's hard to nail down, like, what, what could this look like on any given topic? Because I think it could look like anything on any given topic, which is fun. I I think the
4: thing I'm interested in also is to look at how these networks, not so much as individual pathways, but overall represent the stress that the system is under. So to find ways of, of quantifying the stress that is underlying the whole picture. So um, to use it in, the, in different ways, not just for hospitals, but you could use it for, for um, teams or for, for um, you know, teams of physicians or, or professionals or, or for <laughs> publications networks, whatever you like. Um, but um, I think there, there's a lot more work to be done on, on that, how it actually represents the state of the system.
3: And Dr. Walker and Dr. Kohler, if there's an interested listener who's new to this, is there a textbook, a podcast? What would you recommend they listen to to get started to learn more?
2: I read a little tiny book earlier this year, probably in January, that's like a good, very quick read introduction. Pulling up what it is right now. Oh, it's called Networks, a very short introduction. And it's literally like a little tiny book. It's a quick read and it really, it like it runs down kind of the basics of it so that if you then pick up a paper, on networks. You can understand the language enough to get it. And so if someone just wants a little bit of a primer, that's a good one. You're of course, I would imagine
0: egg. Dr. Kohler's paper, we should read that.
2: Well, you might want to read the introduction to networks first, unless you're very motivated.
3: <laughs> there's a lot
2: of math in that one, um, which is delightful. But <laughs> might be overwhelming calendar. if you're not ready for it. There is, Um, I, can, I think I can, can I
4: say that there's a free book available online oh yeah nothing to do with the actual um, book but if you search for for networks and Bar- Barabasi is the author that is free um, as, a, as a PDF online so um, that that was helpful to me to sort of both introduce and get some of the more complicated topics to understand yeah. but it's very much so sort of full of maps
2: yeah and I would say like Barabasi has so much out there on the topic like can't can't go wrong with that
0: one. Do we have to be an astrophysicist to understand it?
2: I'm not an astrophysicist. Definitely not.
0: You're of that um, astro- of that mental caliber for sure. Oh, no, 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 no.
4: I think um, inherently networks are a nice way to visualize some of these really complicated things. So actually it should make it more accessible rather than more complicated. And ignoring your math is actually not a bad way to go sometimes to just read the concepts and not care so much about all the mathematical formulas because the concepts probably similar to what we talked about with the friends and in social groups are actually something we experience every day. And so it's not that far from what we feel anyways. Um, The math is just
2: to help in the end, but not actually to understand. And the programs will do the math for you. Click the button and now you have the (laughs) betweenness.
3: Well, Uh, thank you to both of you, uh, for joining us from different time zones, uh, to share a complex topic. And thank you for, for breaking it down for us. I think we've learned a lot about applying network science to healthcare. And I think what I've taken away is you don't have to be an astrophysicist to understand the topics just to do the math. Is that right? No, uh, we can, as long as we collaborate with you, it'll be okay. Okay. Thank you to you. Thank you for the
2: Thanks for having
0: us. Thank you for listening to our discussion with Dr. Laura Walker and Dr. Katerina Kohler, incredible thought leaders in healthcare and really cool people overall. Please take a moment to like, comment, and follow our show if you haven't done so already. If you wish to hear the full Grand Rounds episode that Dr. Walker gave us, please continue on and enjoy the recording. The introduction is presented by the truly incredible Dr. Annie Sadasti, otherwise, Alex and I will have you join us back on the first of the month when we are prepared to give you another great show on a topic that, to our knowledge, has never been covered in emergency medicine before. Moving on, Dr. Sadasti, the floor is yours.
1: Good morning, everybody. I have today's privilege and honor of introducing Dr. Laura Walker, our grand round speaker. a little bit about her background. Dr. Walker did her undergraduate work at the University of Minnesota, the other U of M, and it's the lesser of the two, of course. Uh, she did her medical school training at uh, Tulane School of Medicine in New Orleans, and then went and completed her residency in emergency medicine at Yale University's emergency medicine residency. It was in 2012, upon her graduation from residency, that I met Dr. Walker when I tried to recruit her to join the Faculty of Emergency Medicine at Mayo Clinic. And I will tell you that her chair is a friend of mine, uh, Dr. Gail D'Onofrio. And when I was talking to Gail about my intentions of recruiting Dr. Walker to to Mayo and about the leadership role that I had in mind for Dr. Walker, Um, Dr. D'Onofrio said that I was crazy and that I should not do that. And and I felt like I saw a talent in her at an early stage that she was ready for and that she would be successful in the role. And so despite Dr. D'Onofrio's cautioning of me, I forged ahead. So for the last decade, Dr. Walker has been leading in the space of integration. Um, She was the initial medical director in Austin and has really, I think, made a name for herself as it relates to developing smart systems of care. She currently chairs the hospital practice committee and all of the service lines that feed into a hospital practice for Southeast Minnesota. She's getting her MBA at St. Thomas. And you're going to hear today during the Grand, Grand Rounds talk about her fascination with network science. Now, I will tell you that network science is pretty mathy. And um, I'm just going to say geeky, but It has brilliance when it comes to its relevance to all three shields. And I hope that at the end of the talk, you will appreciate it in a way that you didn't before. So um, I am eternally grateful that we were successful in our attempt to recruit Dr. Walker to the Mayo Clinic faculty. And I will tell you that Dr. D'Onofrio's hesitancy was um, incorrect. She has, just done tremendous work in this space and so it is my sincere honor honor to introduce her today.
2: Thank you. That was very nice. Um, Thanks everyone for joining. This is a mathy topic as Dr. Sadasti mentioned. I'm not going to go too heavy on the math a lot more on the principles behind this here, which is to say I'm not going to do any math today. this is something that I have been excited about for the last year or so and um, obviously with COVID have been putting out a lot of fires while simultaneously trying to propel my work on this forward and um, I sent out the teaser on whiteboard and I was hoping to be able to give a shout out but I do not get to give a shout out so you're all gonna have to wait to see what that network uh, was of. So first things first, why would I be talking about network science for emergency medicine grand rounds? Um, And the answer is that as I learned about networks, it really resonated to me in part because of working in the emergency department and generally the way that I see healthcare. And I think that a lot of us in emergency medicine see healthcare because of the nature of our work. And my work on the integration side and kind of seeing the bigger picture from other areas really kind of this really fit with me as I'll, I'll go over later. And so this is absolutely applicable not only to systems of healthcare, but sort of the smaller intra-departmental systems as well. And uh, as I was doing some reading, preparing for this, this quote is one that I came across that I really liked as a description of network science. It's the paradigm to uncover the hidden architecture of complexity. And again, you'll see more going forward. Uh, So I'm going to start out with an overview of the basics so we can really all be on the same page here. And then I'll work on showing you how those basic principles feed into um, and tell us what is happening within a network, and then give some examples on how they can be used in healthcare. And the caveat here is, of course, that the data isn't perfect yet. That's why this is the beta version of my Grand Rounds, Um, again, putting out fires for COVID dealing with furloughs of analysts and programmers and um, COVID surges both in the UK and domestically have affected this and we're still working on it. Um, But I think what I've got to share is pretty good. So the first question here is what are networks? And the picture here is one of the ways that networks are used in healthcare, which is in protein interactions within cells. And so this is a picture of protein-protein interactions in HIV that came as an example in my software. Um, So the research group used data from affinity purification mass spectrometry to identify which proteins interacted with which proteins. So very fancy science followed by very fancy math. and what it does is it shows them the functional relationships between the proteins. And so you can see those different clusters. I guess I can point at them. The different clusters here show which proteins interact most often with other proteins. And the reason that they did this was to show which interactions had low frequency of, or which proteins had a low frequency of interactions and to try to figure out kind of where, where things work together. We're gonna start with a much simpler example of a network here. And so to get the basic language of things, these are nodes and nodes are connected by edges. And we're, yeah, so edges connect nodes. Um, the next thing to understand is that edges can have direction. So the interaction can be one way in either direction. It can be bi-directional or it can have no direction. And the other thing is that they can have weight and you use weight, which is the thickness of the line to denote how often an interaction occurs. And so you can see here, um, this one would be lower frequency than this one, which would have a high number of interactions. My first real life example is me working from home. And there are a couple of locations that I frequent in my home when I am working from home. My life is centered around my couch when I am at home. I take frequent trips to the kitchen because that is where the snacks are. I take occasional trips to the bathroom because I've been to the kitchen a number of times. On good days I go to the dining room to have dinner with my family and I always end up going to bed but I only do that once a day and so it's a a smaller weight there. Um, I sometimes swap to my dining room instead of my couch but for the first nine months of the pandemic it was really all my couch so it's Very weighted towards that being the center of my work at home universe. So networks, they have a lot of characteristics that can tell us how a given system works. We can see bottlenecks, which would be areas where there's only one way through to access the rest of the network, bridges that connect significant areas. We can look at which nodes are most important. So again, going back here, we can see that my couch is the most important place when I am working at home. And you can look at the overall connectivity of the network. Probably the most straightforward real life example are the airlines and this is the delta route map from 1973 and what can we learn when we look at this map we can see that if i want to get from chicago to phoenix i there's no direct flight from chicago to phoenix i need to go change planes in dallas and atlanta in order to get there and there are only 12 direct flights in and out of Chicago at in 1973. You can't leave an airport and fly direct to a lot of these locations. You have to have a layover. And in some cases, you might need several layovers. So fast forward to 2015, and Delta's landscape is massively different. Um, there have been mergers and acquisitions, and there's a shift in which sites are hubs. Chicago used to be pretty busy for Delta and now you can see they go there but it's nothing like the hubs. So Atlanta and Cincinnati are holdovers from the prior map in terms of their importance and now they've got Salt Lake City, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Detroit, New York, LA, and Seattle are all hubs and you can see just the density of flow in and out of them makes very clear how important they are to this network. And So I I went back and I looked at Chicago and I went to the the website for the um, Chicago Airlines, I believe is where I did it, or the airports. And things definitely changed a lot with COVID for the airlines. And so right now, Chicago is only connected to seven US cities by Delta, which seems really low. Um, you know, you look back at 1973, and they had 12 connections, and now they only have seven, but they have this huge robust network of hubs, and so that's that's how airlines get their work done. Um, I looked at Albuquerque on this network here, which looks sad and alone all by itself, and you can see all the different potential routes to get to Albuquerque from other places. You need to change times or change planes. And if you want to do this the fewest times possible, you'll have to travel using the hubs. Albuquerque connects directly to Salt Lake City and to Minneapolis. And that those two connections open up really the entire network of Delta Airlines to Albuquerque. Um, Whereas before you had to do that couple of jumps to get to uh, Phoenix, even Albuquerque is just one jump away really from the world using networks. Um, and I consider my own travels in and out of the Rochester airport, uh, which I like to do. And again, it's, it's one jump to a hub. You know, we can go to Minneapolis or we can go to Chicago and the world is open to us. So now I'll talk a little bit about applying the basics and hopefully we've got a little bit of a feel for them. So now I'm gonna look at how would they work within our department. Um, So this is the picture that I sent of it, and I know the the labels are too small to read, which makes it tricky, Um, but I want to open it up to to guesses here on what this picture may represent, and Annie can't participate because I told her the answer. Go ahead and put them in the chat. It is a particular form of connections within our faculty. Annie, no guessing. I want at least two more brave souls to make a guess. Bank doing it twice doesn't count as another one. Regional practices is an excellent guess. Travel in the ED, also a good guess. All right. Thank you for putting that out there. So this is actually people who published papers within our department in 2020 and who they collaborated with. And so it's it's only one degree out. And so I didn't go to the collaborators of the collaborators, but just who you collaborated with. And so there are 426 nodes here so just within our department those who published last year had connections to 426 total people in 770 different ways and when it says the diameter here is six that's essentially the the maximum degree of separation so if you think about like the the kevin bacon game is a network game and so we're all six degrees from or six degrees of separation Uh, is also a network thing and holds true coincidentally for our map here that the, the people separated the farthest from each other are six jumps apart. And this has what's called a fat tail distribution, which is, this is all the math that I'm gonna talk about. And what this says is that there are fewer nodes with many connections than there are nodes with single connections. So you can see this cluster over here largely has one single connection to this in the middle, which we'll learn more about that specific case. Um, And for all of these many nodes with one connection, there's only one node with many connections. And so that's the fat tail. So there are fewer hubs than there are individual nodes. And this is most often the case in what are called natural networks or non-random networks. So you end up with sort of organized Systems like this, whereas if you make a random network, you end up with a, a normal distribution. And so, you know, you've made it randomly. And so the number of connections and the number of nodes fall out along that normal distribution. Whereas in real life, we tend to see networks that look more like this. Okay, so now I'm going to take a look at one specific cluster of connections here. Someone who is clearly a rock star in our department and has a large number of collaborations, including collaborations with other people in our department who have a large number of collaborators. And when you see who this node represents, it's not going to be very surprising. It's Dr. Bololio. As our research chair, it is not unexpected that she would connect to so many other people. And um, you you can see a particularly thick connection between her and Molly Jeffrey. Um, because of all of their many collaborations, and then Dr. Campbell down here. And so really, you can see far and wide how Fernanda has connected with many individuals, both inside and outside of our department. Another characteristic that we can look at are clusters of people who are connected amongst themselves. And so I'm going to highlight this this cluster down here where you can see has um, a fairly small number of nodes, but some dense connectivity between the individuals there. And this is the ultrasound team. So the ultrasound team put out a couple of publications last year and they collaborated back and forth with each other. And so you can see Dr. Bellam key ultrasound player, Dr. Humer, key ultrasound player, Dr. Laughlin got in on the action as well. Um, and they worked with these individuals, Dr. Hyde up here with a good number as well. They even let Smoot in to get a couple papers there. And so you can see that this was a group that really, they have an interest together. And when you look at that network, you could could see that pattern where they clustered and you pull it out and you can identify how that happened and why that happened. Okay, now. We're getting to the slides that got a little goofed up by the transition to office 360 so hopefully i got it fixed before this so um, we're going to look now at the characteristics of networks and how interconnected the network is so i've taken another individual here and i'm going to look at and show you how many jumps it takes to get to the network in as much as we can there are obviously are some little groups over here that had their own projects with other people that didn't connect to the the large network, which is great. Um, All right, okay. So this is the first degree out from this individual. So these are all of the people that that center person collaborated with in 2020. And then when we look at their connections, it gets bigger. And then for the third or fourth jump here, we've got the entire connected network to that person. And so the degree of connectivity there is smaller than that six, that would be maximal. So that person is really more tied in and central to this network. Um, For the next one, I'm gonna go look at the individual over here, which I mentioned earlier that had all of these connections that don't interface with the rest of the department. And we'll jump through there. So again, they did a couple collaborations within the department that made it so they weren't one of these little snowflakes on the outside, but connected to it. And you can see it takes a couple more jumps to get from this person to include the whole network. All right. And so I want to take a minute to look back at this one again. So you can see the node on the right with the large cluster uh, has a very high degree, a lot of collaborators, but is relatively isolated. So this is a bottleneck. This is someone where if you don't collaborate with this person, or have a connection to this person, you're never going to touch these other parts of the network. They're completely inaccessible, except through that person, all right? So this is this is fun, right? Like, I'm having a great time doing all this stuff, and this entertains me and keeps me happy in my job. Um, but so what? Like, why does this matter in healthcare? And Again, trying to, to do my homework getting on this. This is the same group that published on the HIV protein interactions. There are two major goals for network visualization, exploration and communication. And like to me, that's, that's absolutely what it's about. I like looking at the networks and seeing what they can show me. And I think they're also a really useful tool to introduce other people to what you're finding there and a different way to communicate the data that we see rather than looking at bar graphs and pie charts and percentages and statistics. um, I find it a lot more intuitive to be able to look at the network and glean some understanding from it. Now we'll get into some real world applications and With that, I'm going to do a little bit of background, and the closest thing that I have to a disclosure will be coming. It is not financial in nature. (laughs) Um, So on August 7th, 2019, I was reading Facebook, a social network, and a friend of mine had posted a link to a preprint that she submitted to archive.org. It sounded interesting. She's a smart person and a doctor. So I opened it up and I read it. And like, I'm not the best at keeping up with medical literature by any stretch. And so it was kind of a miracle that I had opened up this paper and decided to read it. And it was a really dense read. Um, There was a lot of math. And like many of you, I'm sure I had not done math for a very long time. And I forgot what a lot of the symbols meant. But I got to the pictures, and when I saw this one, which has been the back, uh, the background of my laptop for, you know, a year plus now, I was totally intrigued, and I was all in, and knew that, um, you know, whatever math was going on there was the key to understanding this picture, and let's be totally clear. That nothing will get my attention like a bunch of terminology that I don't understand, and so I tried to read that paper, and I'm seeing all these words: betweenness, assortativity, centrality, nodes, small world, degrees, weights, distribution, and I'm like, what am I reading here? This is, I don't, I don't understand at all, and I don't like not understanding. So I waded my way through the new terminology, and I came out with some very basic understanding. Um, we have patients that are making their way through a system here. So we've got A&E, which is our emergency department. That's us. That's what we do. And my friend is an anesthetist, which is secretly an anesthesiologist in the UK. And so her focus on this was emergency surgery patients and how they traveled through her system in the NHS. And, um, she is at a hospital that's a regional specialty referral center for trauma, cardiothoracic surgery, transplant, multiple cancer surgeries, and a ton more. And so at the same time as I was reading this article, again, August 2019, very much of the before times, I was shifting gears professionally to my regional hospital practice role and as Annie mentioned, Southeast Minnesota MCHS integration, they've been a part of my career here for not quite a decade, thank you, um, <laughs> since I got here. And I really enjoy the systems. And so once I had the opportunity to kind of take more more under my umbrella, um, it was fun for me. And then seeing this, I had a whole bunch of lights switching on and got super excited. Um, Because the internet is forever, I could go back to my comment on her Facebook post uh, where my friend had shared the paper to which I wrote, I'm reading this paper and I'm terrified I won't have long enough to pick your brain on it when you're here. So again, she links in England and uh, was coming a few weeks later. So here's my disclosure, Dr. Kohler, who may or may not approve of me having her picture here, I think she's on Grand Rounds with us, um, is here. So this is Dr. Kohler. This is my cousin, Dr. Borchert, and I am Dr. Walker. So Dr. Kohler, Katerina, is married to my cousin, Tom. And this is our little, very messy, not very accurate, but good enough family network. Um, So I have known Katarina for 20 years and known her to be a very smart and interesting person. So I was super excited when (laughs) she was gonna come to town. Um, So a few weeks passed, she came to the US and there was literally a family reunion. And I had foreshadowed to her that I was gonna pick her brain on networks. And sure enough, she came to town. We spent some time chatting while the children played down by the river and um, working out how I could get our Mayo data and practice information combined with her network skills and math skills and programming skills to take a different look at how we do things. Um, And then we can fast forward a couple of months and she's now a official external research collaborator with Mayo so she can see our data after being blinded from HPI. We have a programmer, Matt Jankowski who is able to help pull data from the UDP and we've got pieces starting to come together. So why was I excited? I've already told you why I'm excited. Um, but this is really how I see the world when I think about our healthcare system and having a way to communicate that and to convey it to other people was really, like that's the be all end all for me. And so we, we don't have this network made yet, but we will. And so when I look at our outside emergency departments conveniently placed up here for Southeast Minnesota. I know that we send a lot of patients to Rochester. And the first question I asked was, well, what level of care do they need when they go to Rochester? What is the value add that Rochester provides? And then, you know, next on that is what specialty services are these patients who are transferred utilizing? And if they're not utilizing any of these specialty services, why are they coming to Rochester and why can't we help them stay closer to home with adequate resources there? Um, So getting a solid understanding of how and why patients move is important as we work out how best to use the resources we have in the health system and um, keep keep them local, keep them near their families and honestly where they by and large want to be. And so how can we focus our efforts refining the system to make the biggest impact? All right, so again, it's August 2019. I'm super excited. I've got this on my mind. How on earth am I going to be able to do this science and make an impact and actually, like, not just do a mental exercise? Um, so conveniently, I learned about the CPC Innovation Grants, and I thought, aha, if I can get if I can get some support, I can do this. and Once again, Annie could tell stories about my beautiful budget, which was initially a budget of $0 because I really just wanted the the stamp of approval, but she convinced me to ask for money and they gave me some money. And then they took it away because of COVID when we were all gonna go bankrupt. Um, So also collaborating with regional CPC. So Dr. Goyle, I recruited him to my cause here and tried to explain to him how I thought this would be really cool. And he, he took me up on it and was very supportive. Um, Really, I think it makes a good case for patient-centered care. It's a better and more efficient use of resources, potentially, and has the potential to get alignment with enterprise priorities. So I had to learn how to sell it. (laughs) Um, So thinking through what are all the different things that we can do? We can look at patient movement within the region, which I mentioned. We can look at emergency surgeries and elective surgeries, where do patients go when they have to go somewhere, and where do they go when they have a choice to go somewhere. We can look at temporal variation in transfers, so both seasonal and day of the week. And we look, can look at where patients are physically moving from, what zip codes are they coming from, and in the, the enterprise leadership world, what tier are they, meaning you know, where where in the world are they coming from, pretty much, but in a different way. And so we built this beautiful (laughs) proof of concept, (laughs) which um, was a little bit overwhelming. (laughs) Yikes. Like this was not, I mean, it was kind of beautiful to behold, but it's not beautiful. Like I look at this and I still get palpitations. We've got closed loops where the uh, Rochester med-surg ward is transferring to itself and and all kinds of things that aren't quite right. So once again, um, quickly showed us that we needed to work on our data a little bit more. Um, And there is an error on here. This is not Southeast Minnesota transfers by level of care. This is actually the whole Midwest. And so we went from this, which was our dirty data, to this, which is much cleaner Um, and can tell a pretty good story. So. We spent the majority of last year, again, between COVID fires and pandemic spikes, um, identifying which variables we were going to use, which locations, making sure we have all the right permissions to use each piece of information. Um, We had to go through SPAD, I think SPAD doesn't exist anymore, but that was exciting. And then we had to have a SPAD review like the week before SPAD got disbanded. And um, there were lots of concerns regarding HPI and the timestamps we were using, but ultimately everything came out fine. And we worked on cleaning up the data to include in each graph, only the data that we needed to answer the question that we were asking. So in this case, the question was when people come to the ED, where do they go from there? where are they going and why are they going and what level of care do they end up needing? Are they having multiple ED visits? So an ED to ED transfer, or are they being directly admitted from an outside emergency department to an inpatient setting? Which sites and which levels of care at those sites get the highest amount of traffic? So what does this graph tell us? Um, And all credit again to Dr. Kohler for making this beautiful. Um, The nodes here are shaded to indicate the volume of traffic that they receive. And so you can see the the Rochester ward, so our usual kind of floor level of care, is dark purple. And that is the most utilized location and level of care, which if you think about it makes perfect sense. That's where most of our beds are for a reason. Um, Next come the Mankato and Eau Claire wards. Um, So they are also very busy. The other thing about the Rochester ward is that it is a very high degree, meaning there are a lot of connections to it from other areas. Um, And since this is emergency medicine grand rounds, we'll take a look at our emergency departments here. Um, So the data that we use for this really only included patients with an index ED visit. Um, so if they came directly from home, we, we shouldn't have captured them going straight to the ward. But again, the data's in beta still. Um, but that makes our emergency departments all very important in this graph. So the thickness of the lines or the weight you can see is greatest when it goes from home to emergency departments. And again, that's, that was our selection. That's what we chose to look at. So Rochester's the largest followed by Eau Claire, Mankato, Austin, Menominee. Um, there was an earlier graph. Oh, this was an earlier graph. And so Albert Lee is just missing. <laughs> it's not on here, um, but it is about the size of the Austin ED. Uh, Another thing to consider is how many degrees the Rochester ED has. It has a ton. Um, So Rochester is a stop for really a lot of patients and rivals the Rochester ward for the number of connections it makes, Uh, which begs the question, are all of those ED visits value added or is that a bottleneck in the system for patients who are being admitted? I don't have the data to answer that question right now, Um, but it is a question that this kind of analysis can look at. And if we feed in the right factors, we can get an answer for that. Um, So now we have a working model of patient movement in the wind Where do we go from here? And what will we inform with this information? So when I'm working in the ED in Rochester, I see a lot of patients who choose to come from communities that have A health system ED in them. Some days I get really curious and I ask the patients, why did you bypass your local emergency department to come here with your sprained ankle? And sometimes their prior experience is that they always get sent here anyway, and they think that cutting out the middleman is a good idea. Some patients get specialty care here in Rochester and feel like that continuity is important to them. Um, Some just happen to be in town when something goes awry and some people have had negative experiences in outside EDs and they don't want to go there, they just want to come here, um, which does go both ways, by the way. So I think about these barriers to local care and how can we address them. And the first thing to understand is really what's the scope of this problem? Are certain communities naturally split? Are there far off communities with unexpected Rochester visits? Are there ways to really understand the pattern of patient movement. Um, So to map it out, the first thing that we did was look at the zip codes. And this is some data that was shared by the Kern Center of the way that they had done it already. And so when you look at this map, you can see um, the volume of patients coming from all of these different areas in the Midwest and unsurprisingly, it's a lot denser in the communities around Rochester than these far-flung communities where you have kind of onesie-twosie visits to Rochester. So what we did is we took ED visits by zip code and we mapped them all out. And again, the data is in beta, (laughs) Um, but you can see some patterns in here if you look closely. So we've got, some zip codes. So here's here's one here, this 56001 that splits between the Rochester ED and the Albert Lee ED. And we've got this one here that primarily goes to Albert Lee but occasionally has some connections to Rochester. Um, and if we go up here, Minneapolis and St. Paul by and large go to Rochester, but occasionally they find themselves in Austin and in Red Wing. And here, this cluster is important. So we've got three zip codes that split between Rochester and Lake City. And so what is it about this area? Is it geographically, like honestly between the two where you could go either way? Um, Or are these people who are consciously deciding to bypass Lake City from time to time and come to Rochester? So from a business and patient care perspective, it's really important. This is looking at elective cholecystectomies. So again, going outside the emergency department um, to an elective and scheduled procedure. And I don't have a numeric scale like I did for some other things, but the weight of the edges again is the volume of patients coming from each node. So you can get a feel for it. Um, And we didn't include the national, international patients just sort of local Midwest patients here. Um, So, Maintaining a surgical presence at a site. So considering our smaller sites, it requires really a reasonable volume to pay to keep those ORs opened and staffed. And there are limitations as to level of care available. So Austin, if you get your um, gallbladder taken out there, you can't have all the comorbidities. You can't need to go to an ICU afterwards because we don't have that service. And so if you are, your baseline is too rough for, a surgery in Austin, you're gonna to go to Rochester to get that care. Um, and that's, that's the right thing to do. But for the most part, if you're having a run-of-the-mill cholecystectomy and go to a tertiary care or quaternary care center, um, access becomes a challenge for those people who really need to have their surgeries done with that higher level of care. And when we lose business to our smaller sites that's a problem also and makes them less financially viable. <laughs> um, so when considering optimal access and maintenance of certain offerings in the community, maximizing appropriate local care is just the right thing to do. So here we see that there's a lot more movement from within Minnesota to Rochester, as opposed to Wisconsin. They, they stay pretty well on their own. Northwest Wisconsin has the lockdown, and there's just one little leak from Southwest Wisconsin. And so the Minnesota ones are really the ones to focus on and those that are splitting. So how can we encourage the appropriate patients to seek appropriate care at their local facility? I don't have the answer to that yet, but improving awareness, offering the local site to patients. So if they happen to come to Rochester to follow up for something and it's okay for them to get their surgery in Austin, we could offer that. Um, For data collection here, we opted to use the CPT codes, which is the actual procedure code, rather than a diagnosis code. Um, And again, that was kind of a trial and error issue, um, but made it a lot cleaner for us. So we also did it for emergency or for appendectomies, all comer appendectomies. So some of these are elective and some of these are are, um, acute unscheduled. And so again, you can see, Austin's my go-to, clearly. Um, We've got that here, and there are patients in Austin who end up going to Rochester. There are patients in Winona that'll go either to La Crosse or Rochester, and we need to figure out where we want those patients to go. So temporal variation is what we're going to talk about next. Um, I'm going to look at the comments quick to see if there's anything to look at my budget stinks was the exact quote. Yes. Um, So temporal variation and again, uh, some props to Katerina, Dr. Kohler here. She took it upon herself to make some seasonal maps, and this is focused just on southeast Minnesota. And I included the commentary up at the top. all know and feel that there is seasonal variation in the patients who come to the emergency department and where they end up going and how busy we are, how busy we feel. And so this is quarter one historical data and the data goes back to Rochester Epic Go Live. Um, So anything after that is included. And so quarter one here, we can see that we sent a lot of patients to the Rochester ICU in quarter one. Not so much in quarter two. Quarter two, they mostly went to the ED, and I think there's a node missing there to the floor that should be very bright. Um, Red Wing had a really busy quarter two. Back to quarter three, it's trauma season. We're going back to the ICU. (laughs) And respiratory season again in quarter four, ICU is busy again. Um, The other thing that you can look at is the relative, oops, thickness of the lines for transfers and They're not quite as prominent here right now, but there is, you know, if I toggle back and forth, you can kind of see how some things change and that there is variation present. And the next thing that uh, I found deep in my inbox after I asked for it, she had sent it to me many months prior, (laughs) uh, which is weekday versus weekend volumes. And um, again, you can see some differences here. And I think part of it is we didn't I don't believe that we scaled, there's five weekdays and two weekend days. Um, So the thickness of the lines may not um, match quite so well, but again, gives you an example of the things that we can do with this data, which includes looking at temporal variation. (laughs) Um, So we've got a lot of potential additional use cases on the horizon here. So the the made up network that I showed earlier, the use of specialty care for transferred patients is one I'm really excited (laughs) to have the data for. Um, We've also got some data sets that include outpatient primary care and specialty care visits. Again, to make sure that we're able to get the patients to the right setting at the right time for what they need. We've got, uh, Katarina has a nice algorithm, I think, working out to look at actual distance traveled to receive care. And then another thing that we could look at is movement within the hospital. So when we were first looking at our data and trying to clean it up, um, you can see basically every single part of the hospital that a patient travels to. So if they leave their ED room and go to radiology, there's a timestamp and a location stamp that is registered in the medical record. And using that, we could plot the patient path using the EMR to build a network that can go through and find those bottlenecks so similar to the map that katarina had done for her nhs work all right but once again this is emergency medicine grand rounds i'm going to focus a little bit again so this this picture this is where the emergency medicine patients in the uk went and absolutely is something that we could do within mail and just expound Upon that. Um, so, here, when we look at the details, so as I was mentioning earlier, you can see when those patients travel to radiology. So, this cluster up here are patients who were in AE, needed a CT scan, back and forth, x ray, back and forth, MRI, not very many, just like here. Um, and ultrasound, also pretty popular. Theater is the OR. And um, you can see that. ED to radiology, lots of connections. And so when I think about our own situation, I am always thankful how close radiology is to the emergency department. So we're cutting down on that physical travel time from space to space. Um, So the other thing to think about is what, what can an edge be? So for a lot of this, the edge represents travel. For the consultation idea, the edge doesn't so much represent travel as much as it represents a transfer of information. And that information is in the form of a consultation. And so really, you know, what else could an edge be? An edge could be a blood sample. We could look at how the patient's laboratory sample travels throughout our system. Edges can be equipment. Um, you could really think of anything that travels either physically or conceptually as an edge and a way to connect nodes, which could be people, could be locations, could be, again, any number of things. And in emergency medicine, we can look at a network, we can adjust the network and we can create something new that minimizes delays, minimizes bottlenecks, like that's what we try to do kind of on the ground to make our departments flow better. This is this is what we do. And this is something that I see as a tool to conceptualize that for other people, to communicate that to other people and to help guide that work. And so most important slide of the session is my profound appreciation for the individuals listed here. Um, Dr. Kohler, awesome. Um, Like so thankful to know her and to be able to collaborate with her. Matt Jankowski is our programmer who pulls all the data from the UDP for us and cleans it up. And we literally would not have this work without him. Um, Dr. Haberman has been instrumental in supporting this project through the, the challenges of COVID and the loss of my not so stinky budget. Um, Sarah Daniels with IT in Minnesota, DP, Annie and Dr. Gestout, Mayo Clinic CPC who funded the first round. And then i found out a couple of weeks ago that I got refunded (laughs) for 2021, which will be awesome. Um, And then again, the Kern Center, which um, has been supportive of this via Dr. Haberman. So questions, discussion, I'm going to stop sharing so we can all look at each other.
0: Dr. Walker, this is Venk. Thank you so much for that. I have to know, how do you make this? Is there easy software that the rest of us could could do? Yeah,
2: so the very first network visualization I made was the one of the... the collaboration within the department. Prior to that, I had not been brave enough to do it, um, but I I dove in. I downloaded a software called Site Escape, which you can play with pretty much and figure out some things. Um, but I would say that Dr. Kohler, who is with us here wearing the N95, um, has been the master of that due to her coding abilities which she does in Python for us, and being able to translate our data into the program. So it depends how complicated you want to make a network. I can tool around and play and make a family tree. Tom.
1: Hi, Laura. Excellent, <clears throat> Excellent talk. Thank you very much. Um, a couple questions. One, it, has there been anything to date that has changed uh, the direction of a practice initiative or process from what you've um, learned? And number two, what are the opportunities for AI sort of affecting this? It's a little bit dizzying. All the information—is it yeah. a way to sort of streamline with with an AI interface?
2: So for the first question, not yet. And you know, I tell myself that the reason for that is because it's been COVID fires for a year. Um, I think that there's good momentum now that things are calming down with COVID, and that our data is getting to a reasonable enough place to be able to show the actual current state, identify issues and hopefully solve them. And so it's it's all a matter of getting a foothold within the practice to help them understand that this is a tool, which I think we're getting good work towards. Um, so not yet, but hopefully soon is my answer there. Um, as far as AI, I'm out of my league on that, to be honest. I mean this is all big data work. Um, you know, we pull every single ED visit from the Midwest to make these graphs. And So is there a way to take something autonomous on the back end to identify these things? Probably. Um, But we haven't gone that route at this point.
0: Thank you very much, Dr. Walker, for sharing the idea of networking science and for potentially inspiring us to think about it as a tool to improve communication and the demonstration of flow and process or nearly everything. Thank you for listening to Always on EM, the Grand Rounds episode. Now is a great time to like, comment, and follow us on your podcasting platform. Also, be sure to come join us on the first of the month of July when we will bring another great episode your way. We will see you later. The Always On EM Podcast.
1: Emergency Medicine Grand Rounds.